So, last week, we started our series on the seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation. How many remember that? All right, good. <laughs> and we are covering, we covered more or less the introduction to those chapters. We won't take time this morning to review all of that. If you missed it, you could watch it on YouTube, listen to it on the website, or any one of many popular podcast services, and that may prove to be helpful for last week sets things up for what we will be covering in the weeks to come here. So today we start with the first of these seven churches, the one in Ephesus, Christ's message to them, what is best thought of as a prophetic oracle, uh, is found there in the first seven verses of chapter two, and we'll start by reading through it, and I'll be using the 1984 version of the NIV, but all the other translations, if you follow along, they will be very, very similar. Okay, so verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you had fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." Right, so I had asked everyone to read um, through that a number of times this past week, and hopefully that's the case, and you are now familiar with that passage. You might recall from last week the discussion on how these short sermons are structured. All of the elements, forgot to remove all these animations, um, all of the elements are here. Uh, in this message to the Ephesians, we have Christ commissioning John to write. Christ is identified with a title or description. There's an assessment of the church. It's made. A correction is mandated. Christ promises to follow up, to come. A call to hear is issued. And finally, a reward is promised to those who overcome the sin that Christ has brought to their attention. All right, so um, let's talk about the city of... Ephesus here a little bit. Most likely, Ephesus was the first church to be addressed because it would have been the first stop on the route, as you see here. Uh, the natural travel circuit would have begun on the coast at Ephesus, having arrived there by sea from Patmos, and moved northward to Smyrna and all the way around down to Laodicea and then back to Ephesus. And this map here shows the larger picture, if you want to kind of get your um, where it fits into the whole area there. And uh, these seven churches are all located in modern-day Turkey. All right, so for some context, let's look at the city itself. When John wrote Revelation, Ephesus was the largest metropolitan city in that whole region in Asia Minor, enjoying a population of around 500,000 people. That's, that's a lot. Historians point out that it was a cultural commercial, and spiritual hub of that whole province. It was buzzing with activity. This is largely due to the fact that it had become a major seaport to that whole region. The river that flowed into it was considered a highway into the interior, and so the city naturally became a vital part of numerous trade routes. 
Ephesus itself was quite impressive. It was populated with many public buildings and libraries and temples, and quite significant. It was also the, a major center of occult practices, pagan rituals, and various mystical religions. And the primary one being the worship of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. Uh, you may remember this from the book of Acts, and there we read that the residents of Ephesus claimed that her statue, her image, had fallen from the heavens. And probably what that was was a meteorite that eventually was um, formed, fashioned, carved into an image of a female deity. So her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The sanctuary measured over 150 yards long. That's a long way, 77 yards wide, and it had 127 marble pillars, each at least six stories high. This is quite impressive. And it is said that the city itself lived in the shadow of this temple. And people from all over came to Ephesus to worship there. And because Artemis was the goddess of fertility, the festivals involved an abundance of sexual activity and orgies, which, of course, actually helped to attract the crowds. And as to be expected, the town thrived from the commercialization of this religion. As just one example, goldsmiths, coppersmiths, and silversmiths, they just all made a killing sewing miniature statues of Artemis, not to mention all the revenue that was generated from the tourism itself. So I won't show a picture of Artemis. I'll just say that her image is pretty bizarre. Uh, as She's a goddess of fertility, and she is endowed with numerous breasts, some like 20 or more. And the worship of her involved a just a lot of dark and mystical rituals and steeped in the occult and sorcery and witchcraft and, again, sexual acts. And you might recall from Acts 19 that once the gospel came to Ephesus, many who had practiced sorcery there repented and publicly renounced their occult practices by publicly burning their books, so much so that the value of those would have been equivalent to millions of our dollars. And this itself just gives you a glimpse into the money spent on the religious life there at Ephesus. People were definitely into it. Also, as a note of interest, the temple of Artemis was lit with an eternal flame. If the flame were to ever go out, the priest on duty would have to pay with his life. That's how serious they took it. In fact, the only ones near her were priests, of whom had to be eunuchs. This because Artemis was so seductive, so lascivious, that it was unsafe for non-eunuchs to be near her. So the whole thing's pretty bizarre. And such was Ephesus. Our own culture is pretty depraved, but nothing like that. Indeed, it would have been much harder for a Christian in that culture. The church there, you know, would have to guard itself against these pagan religions, uh, the, uh, you know, the practices that were involved in the worldview that all that promoted, uh, which Ephesus, of course, was steeped in. Now, because of its strategic location, Ephesus, however, was a perfect place for the gospel to go forth. And thus, Paul, after founding the church there, used it as a missionary base for the whole province. The city became the mother church, out of whose ministry many others in Asia Minor are founded, including the other six here in Revelation. And so it seems fitting that it would be the first church addressed in Revelation. Not only was it the first natural stop on the circuit, but it was also the most prominent. And according to early church tradition, we don't know this for sure, but according to early tradition, the Apostle John was eventually released from exile on Patmos, and he chose to live out his remaining days there in Ephesus. And from there, he served to strengthen not just the church in Ephesus, but the other churches in the region as well. 
Okay, so with that background in place, let's now work through the text itself. We'll start there again with the first three verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold stands, lampstands. I, I know uh, your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So as you see here, it begins with Christ commissioning John to write to the church, and Christ identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and as one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And as we know from last week, the stars are symbolic for the seven angels, and the lampstands are symbolic for the seven churches. And it seems that the point here is to remind the Ephesians that Christ holds a place of sovereignty over them, and he maintains not just absolute authority, but also watchful care. All right, and now for the assessment. You know, the church is evaluated and graded. First, there are things that deserve praise. Christ says to them, I know your deeds, I know your hard work, I know your perseverance. And a couple lines down in verse 3, the compliment is repeated, which further emphasizes the appreciation that Christ genuinely has for them. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. And um, as we can tell, this is a church with a great amount of energy and dedication. Now, for us, we don't know exactly what those deeds were or what their hard work was about or what it was that they persevered in, or for that matter, what hardships exactly they endured in Christ's name. Perhaps Christ wasn't narrowing this down to just a few select examples. It might be that these qualities were representative of the whole ministry there, of everything. Uh, this was their reputation in the region and their reputation in heaven. However, we could speculate that they, that these qualities especially applied to something Christ mentions in the second half of verse 2, their diligence and faithfulness to not tolerate wicked men and to test those who claim to be apostles. Uh, you know, an active response is required to deal with those challenging orthodoxy. The deeds and perseverance and diligence they were praised for probably included the hard work of searching the scriptures and research and interrogating these questionable teachers and doing all the things necessary to check them out. And there would have just been endless discussions among the teachers and elders and forming plans about how to respond appropriately and all that would be involved in explaining and teaching everything to the church itself and so on. And all this, of course, would be, as you could tell, quite time-consuming and exhausting. But yet, the church's passion for truth compelled them to guard themselves from false teachers and to expose those who claim to have Christ's authority but don't. And for this, Christ is very pleased with them. He commends them, you know, basically with a hearty, well done, good for you. These so-called apostles that the Ephesians tested were most likely proselytizers and itinerant preachers or maybe self-proclaimed prophets who invoked divine authority so as to give themselves and their teachings a platform. And as we know from other writings in the New Testament, this was a common problem in the first century. Paul, indeed, Paul, if you will remember, rebukes the Galatians for being way too eager in accepting such hexters as authentic. Huck, 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 did I say hexters? I meant hucksters. Let me say it again. Paul, why did I say hexters? Paul rebukes the Galatians for being way too eager in accepting such hucksters 
as authentic. And that's what they were, hucksters. Does everyone know what huckster is? All right. In this particular case here at Ephesus, we don't know who these false apostles were or what troublesome teachings they were promoting. But a clue might be found down in verse 6 where Jesus commends them for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans. Maybe the false prophets were part of that group. Or maybe the Nicolaitans were an additional threat that Ephesus had to deal with. Whatever the case, we also don't know who the Nicolaitans are or what they believed or even what they did. And any information we have about them is very sketchy. As you will remember from our church history classes, one of the more um, dangerous and heretical movements that started to infiltrate churches toward the end of the first century involved Gnosticism. Hopefully that rings a bell. And it came in many different colors and flavors. And a number of scholars today believe that the Nicolaitans were one of these Gnostic groups. Basically, all Gnostics at that time regarded the whole physical world as inferior and corrupt. And this, of course, proved to be a major conflict with some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, like acknowledging God's creation as good. You know, that's a problem. And uh, accepting the genuineness of Christ's incarnation and also his resurrection, you know, a physical resurrection, all of which the Gnostic groups either rejected outright or, re or rejected by redefining all that stuff. And from there, other significant doctrines were threatened as well. Uh, Gnostics taught that Christ Jesus was not so much of a savior as he was an enlightener, and the problem with man was not his sin, but his ignorance. And since our physical bodies don't really matter, it's no big deal if they are engaged in sin, and so on. So it's hard to say if the Ephesians were up against such heresies, but given what we know of that time period, it would seem likely that this would be the case. At the end of the day, identifying the false prophets is not as important to us as taking note of the fact that of the Ephesians' track record for defending orthodoxy. That's what should stand out and embracing their example. Whatever the false teaching may have been, whatever the heresy, whoever it was that prom was promoting it, the example the Ephesians set for us is pretty clear. You know, test all things, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. So all churches must be willing to endure all the hard work that this noble task requires and endure all the hardships and resistance that this will certainly um, uh, be faced with. And because in the end, a church does not have the luxury of tolerating anything that threatens the message of the gospel. Correct? Boy, that was a hearty amen. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> given the weak attitude North American churches generally have towards sound doctrine today, this is very unfortunate, all would do well to read these seven verses and to take to heart the lessons there. And some examples today, these are just some of many, of where threatening ideas have wormed their way in to the modern church would include teachings that elevate subjective experiences over the authority of God's word, um, the prosperity gospel, the whole name it and claim it approach that elevates actually the authority of man over the, uh, as that of a deity, um, the idea that this historic doctrine of the atonement is essentially child abuse, a popular teaching in many circles of the emergent church where sin is irrelevant and God's justice is irrelevant. Our sins don't need to be perpetuated. And also another one, the very trendy right now, are all the various ways churches accommodate the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. 
It's one thing to be friendly and welcoming of those who identify as such. It's another thing to welcome the worldview that drives this abomination. We must not endorse what God condemns. And the same for heterosexual immorality. It's not uncommon for evangelical churches to let couples live together outside marriage, and this because they take a soft view of Christ's lordship. His laws are secondary to our desires. And all of these various ideas and teachings worming their way into churches today and more are the result, when it comes down to it, of a compromised and very low view of God's holy and infallible word. And so the example the Ephesians set is an honorable one. May we long to hear the same words of praise that they heard. And let us remember that they were honored for their perseverance in this. Their faithfulness to guard against sound doctrine was not just a one-time thing, but ongoing. It was a whole lifestyle. Over and over and over and over, they combated false teachings and false teachers, and they were willing to both persist in all the hard work that this involved and endure all the hardships that came with it. All right, that said, not everything there in Ephesus is applauded by the Lord. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So the severity of the punishment here, I will remove your lampstand, equivalent to a death sentence for the church, clearly and soberly indicates the severity of their sin. Whatever this love is that they no longer had, Christ regards their loss of it as very disturbing. So the million-dollar question here, of course, and one that isn't answered by the text itself, at least directly, is what is this first love that they had forsaken? Well, it doesn't appear to be a love for the truth. Christ commends them for their passionate defense of doctrinal purity, as we talked about. Uh, now, the first time I heard a preacher talk about this, probably when I was around 15 years old, he suggested that the Ephesians had forsaken their love for evangelism. And um, that thought has always stuck with me because probably it was the first time I ever heard anyone try to address it. However, um, you know, this was part of a larger sermon exhorting church members to be more aggressive in winning others to Christ. And I suppose that if he were giving a sermon on feeding the poor or attending Wednesday night prayer meetings or tithing, he could have offered the same suggestion, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, the most common response out there is that the Ephesians had lost their love for God himself. And this seems to be the standard answer given. And some of that argument is based on the premise that first love is referring to rank or priority rather than something chronological. Okay? The primary love, the highest love, the first love, as the Bible teaches, is to be love for, love for God. And that could be the case here. At this point, the church there in Ephesus would have been more than 40 years old, which means that a whole another generation had risen up. And the suggestion here is that the children of the original members did not have the same intense enthusiasm for the Lord and for the gospel that their parents had. Things had grown a little bit cold. And we might note that a similar condition occurred in Israel after the days of Joshua. And so this conclusion makes sense, at least on a couple levels. But there's also some problems with it. It seems somewhat doubtful that they would have such a strong love for God's truth without also having at least a healthy measure of love for God. 
After all, the thing that motivated them to go to all this trouble and bother to test false apostles and to deal with all the headaches that, that, would, that this would involve can be best explained by a genuine devotion to God himself. And the specific words there in verse 3, you have endured hardships for my name, hardly sounds like they lacked passion for the Lord. Also, there are reasons to believe that first love here is referring to something they had at the beginning and not necessarily something that is to be the first above all, as in priority. And this comes from the words at the end of verse 5, repent and do the things you did at first. And so if it isn't love for God, then what is it that we are commanded to love that is so important that if that love is lost, it warrants a firm rebuke from the Lord? Well, the natural answer to that would be love for each other, all right? Though love for God is to be our greatest love, there is quite a bit more said in the New Testament about loving each other, and that's probably because it's a lot harder to do. And so, might this be the love that the Ephesians had lost? Well, perhaps. It actually seems to fit pretty well. In fact, we may have already seen some clues along this line. You know, what is true of people can also be true of churches. Our greatest strengths, generally and unintentionally, also brings out our greatest weaknesses. You ever observed that? I'm a good example of this. You know, I tend to be organized and intentional and structured, industrious. I get things done. I get them done on time. But the nature of these qualities make me prone to certain weaknesses. Um, I'm impatient. I'm easily frustrated. I'm irritable. I tend to see people as resources, you know, put the project above people, all right? I'm probably telling you things you've never observed, I'm sure. <clears throat> I'm such a people person, aren't I? The point is, the strengths we see here in Ephesus could provide a clue as to what this love is that they once had but have since lost. A likely scenario, excuse me a moment here, probably about three months, I'll lose my voice completely. I had this trouble last week. A likely scenario with the Ephesians, a likely scenario is that the Ephesians became so preoccupied with identifying wicked people and exposing false apostles and refuting their practices and teachings that eventually a spirit of suspicion and mistrust permeated their fellowship. The climate there perhaps had become hardened. Love for truth increased while love for those who threatened the truth decreased. And eventually that loveless orthodoxy hardened the whole church body. Perhaps those who weren't that theologically savvy might have felt like they didn't really fit in that well. Those who thought that there were other things uh, more important to do than just chase down and expose false teachers might have been ignored or put down. Anyone who might have said something, not heretical, but just a little bit off, might have been immediately corrected. Perhaps even secondary minor tenets were elevated and became tests of faith. You know, you weren't really welcomed unless you checked all the boxes. You had to be premillennial, complementarian, non-sacramental, congregational, young earther, you know, post-tribulational, and a Molinist, even though they didn't have Molinist back then, but, you know, so on. Not all that hard to imagine that's how some of this might have played out. Any visitor who happened to show up, the first thing many people are thinking is, what heresy and wicked teaching is this new guy going to try to spread? 
and so it might not have always been a warm welcome. Whatever the case, the Ephesians were no longer the caring, compassionate community that they had been in the beginning. And it was probably not intentional. It's just what happens when all of the focus is directed to one particular thing. And this seems to fit the flow of Christ's message to them pretty well, especially the correction that he mandates. Do the things you did at first. You know, concrete actions. Do the things you once did. And those concrete actions probably consisted of all those one another passages found throughout the New Testament that we are all familiar with. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Comfort one another. Care for one another. Humble yourselves and prefer one another. And so on. There's a whole list of them. Concrete actions. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Share with those who have needs. Have equal concern for each other and more. Do the things you did at first. You know, what happened? You aren't doing those things anymore. One of the members needed help moving, and only a couple people showed up. A few people needed rides to the church, but no one was really interested in helping out. A couple of their folks were in a nursing home. Hardly anyone stopped by to visit them. Prayer requests were often sent out. Members read the requests, but few people actually bothered to pray. They were supposed to be a church family, yet most of them didn't even know the names of everybody else. What happened? Do the things you did at first. Let me know if I'm hitting too close to home here. I found it interesting, ironic, that when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians 25 or 30 years earlier, he exhorted them to speak the truth, but to do so in love. The two go together. They had the truth part down, but not so much the love part. Whatever was going on, the overall picture here seems to be a possible one, if not probable. The Ephesians had become a church of loveless orthodoxy. Doctrinal orthodoxy is essential, but it cannot make up for cold hearts and self-centeredness. Now, very important, so this is not misunderstood, notice that the correction says nothing about backing off from testing self-proclaimed apostles and refuting false and wicked teachers. Nothing here in Christ's words suggests that they were guilty of overdoing it and needed to scale back. Rather, the correction focuses on things they once did, but have since, for whatever reason, stopped doing and need to start doing again. You know, most of the commentaries I looked at seemed to have missed that whole point. I was kind of amazed at this. They argued that the Ephesians had gone too far. In fact, one of them said, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. In other words, too much concern for sound doctrine will inevitably cause the church to love others less. That's not true. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests anything like that. Again, the Ephesians were not exhorted to soften their approach on testing false apostles and, uh, false apostles and, uh, and upholding orthodoxy. Rather, they are to add to that which was missing, namely, acts of love. Perhaps the environment there was, not, was all about getting people to think biblically, and thinking biblically is essential. There's no way one should back off of that. But the main reason we are to think biblically is so that we can act biblically. And we could assume that the Ephesians weren't acting biblically toward each other and toward outsiders. And for that matter, we are, quite frankly, here speculating on why the Ephesians lack love. Given what we know of the church, it's, it's, it's a sound speculation, but we can't make any hard conclusions about it. There may have been other reasons. 
And we're also speculating, though again it's a sound speculation, that the love they lost was a, a, a love for each other. But whatever the case, this we do know, and this is what we need to focus on here for the rest of this morning, or for a part of it. One, they were praised for honoring the truth, and two, they were scolded for their lack of love. The fact that they lacked love itself indicates that they failed to put into practice the very truths they fought hard to defend. And this, again, is what should get our attention. The takeaway here is that the Ephesians failed to put into practice some of the very truths that they, that they passionately fought for. You know, it's, it's the very thing James warned about that we looked at earlier today. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So the solution isn't to back down on learning. The solution is to step up on applying what is learned. So if I were to speak candidly here, I think this is something our church would benefit by thinking about a little bit here. It's, it, it, you know, it is here that the rebuke of Ephesians probably hits pretty close to home. We may or may not be a loveless church, but there are certainly areas where we are not honoring the word as faithfully as we may think, and this because we tend to ignore it when it comes to actually applying it, especially if the applying of it involves anything inconvenient or uncomfortable or sacrificial. So let me offer a couple examples here. If, as you listen to a sermon here on Sunday mornings, regardless of who presents it, you know, just ask yourselves, really, how do you treat it? How, how, what do you perceive its purpose to be? Is it something that is to help you in your spiritual growth and sanctification? Or is it merely an opportunity to exercise your skills of discernment? A guest speaker comes and challenges us to pray for the persecuted believers in China. And he makes some really great points, and he uses scripture to exhort us to regard their sufferings as our very own, and to pray for them regularly, daily. However, you know, his hermeneutics is a bit questionable at times. He tends to take verses out of context. A couple of his, of his examples seem to be exaggerated. The logic of his points don't always follow, and he even has a few facts that really aren't exactly correct. And we note all these things. It's how we've been trained. This is a good thing. Afterwards, a few of us might even, you know, share those observations with each other. However, however, the one thing we don't do is the very thing the sermon was all about. Pray for the persecuted believers in China. We heard the word, and yet nothing in our lives changed. Even with all the mistakes the speaker made, the word of God was still evident in the challenge. Now, that's not an actual example, but it's one that takes little imagination for us here to see. It's a shoe that fits. One might ask, even, has any sermon ever given from this pulpit from anyone ever resulted in any changed behavior? If not, maybe the sermons are to be blamed, or maybe it's the perception of what we have of a sermon's pur purpose, or maybe it's because we are only into learning and we don't really see that doing what we learn is that important. It's kind of optional, secondary. And then, the, then, and then there's this. this. is a true example. There are a number of our folks here who are simply unwilling to give the congregational prayer. They are afraid that they might word something wrong and that others will scrutinize it. They just won't come up here to pray. And so I have to wonder, where did this fear come from? Have they heard others scrutinize prayers? 
Is this a common thing? Or is that just, you know, is it the climate that we've created here? Now, is it wrong to scrutinize prayers? No. But if all we are doing is examining and if all we are doing is examining and evaluating the prayers and not really joining in them, giving our own amen to the words of praise and the requests being made of God, well, then that's a problem. That you do agree that's a problem, right? We, we could say the same things about songs. We want them to be doctrinally sound and have good content. This is good. But do we actually worship God when we sing them? Or are we just kind of like going through the motions? If we're just going through the motions, singing without reflecting on the words and actually worshiping God, then why bother with songs that are theologically sound? For that, any old song would do. <clears throat> and so, we here may or may not be loveless like the Ephesians. Probably depends on who you ask for, who you ask, but... I'm sure there's room for improvement here, but either way, the same root problem is one we are faced with to some degree, and, and it's a threat that we would not want to quickly dismiss, and it comes down to this, thinking that by defending the truth, we are honoring it, and therefore, it's not that big of a deal whether we actually do it or not. That's the threat we face. Again, James, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. So that's a powerful expression, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. <clears throat> so... Again, I can't emphasize this enough. Even here in James, the remedy is not to learn less, but rather to take what is learned and do it. Right belief without right practice results in a false religion. And James is very clear about this, as we looked at earlier. You know, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. It's action-based, to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the widow, uh, by the world, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> The best points can be ruined by one mispronunciation. <clears throat> the Ephesians, the guardians of the truth, who thought that they had such a high view of God's truth and love for it and faithfulness to it, upholders of the true religion, ironically, because they didn't put that truth into practice, actually dishonored it and were on the verge of falling into a false religion themselves. With the Ephesians, we too have to be sure that we are consistent. We need to think biblically, and we need to act biblically. This means that we have to spend lots of time and energy on learning the Bible so that we can think the way that God wants us to think. And it also means that we have to spend lots of time and energy on, on applying what we learn. Otherwise, our learning is useless and our faith is dead. The goal that is always to be at the center of our focus is our being transformed into the image of Christ. These words, Paul to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's a priority. 
While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his, that are his very own, eager to do what is good, these then are the things you should teach. I like that. These then are the things you should teach. All right, and now for the conclusion this morning. <clears throat> Verses 6 and 7. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as we find elsewhere in the New Testament and throughout the book of Revelation, there is this definite link between the Garden of Eden and eternity in the new creation, in New Jerusalem. And one of the things achieved by the victory of Jesus in which his followers are to share in and participate in is this restoration of God's good creation before sin, or before sin entered the world. And the reward, if the church at Ephesus repents, is this very promise, the promise of paradise, a state in which God and his people are restored to that perfect fellowship which existed before the fall. All right, so next Sunday, we will continue. We'll be looking at the church at Smyrna, verses 8 to 11. It's just four verses there in chapter 1. And um, I just ask that you would read it through it several times and be familiar with it as we talk about it next week. All right, I'll invite Dave now to come and did you, we were not notified. All right. Uh, <laughs> Josh is shaking his head. Do you mind closing on the spur of the moment? Thanks. It's a good thing I was paying attention <laughs> this time. So, right. Um, actually, actually, right toward the end, I mean, I, I love the, the challenge that Wendell gave, of course, and it's, um, yeah, it's always, um, well, that, that was a particularly well thought through challenge, the, the balance of it and not to be reactionary. Uh, I definitely appreciate that. Um, and then there was a <clears throat> turn of phrase you used towards the end that I was, I was thinking I'll probably always remember about, I'm, this is not a eulogy, I'm sounding like he's <clears throat> gone on, but um, that when he talks about the, the things that Christ has gained in his victory and then thinking of uh, like the hymn that you love, the See the Conqueror, that, um, that imagery of <clears throat> he's won things and um, the spoils and that those things are tangible and real now. And then we also have those things to look forward in the future. So, um, yeah, so I, I very much appreciate that. And so please stand and we'll, I'll read the verse on the screen together. Can we read this together? The hour has already come for you to wake from, from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Amen. You are dismissed. <clears throat>